Psalm 108 is a psalm of deliverance, and it follows in the same vein as Psalm 107. A major difference is Psalm 107 is a psalm of deliverance written by the exiles, whereas Psalm 108 is a psalm of deliverance written by David. As well, what makes this psalm unique is that it is a combination of two other psalms. Verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 108 are identical to Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. And verses 6 through 13 are identical to Psalm chapter 60, verses 5 through 12. So basically, this psalm, which the superscription tells us is written by David, is a restatement of two of his previous psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. Now, these are written under the direction or the super God, superintendence of the Holy Spirit. We call that inspiration. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, saw fit in this psalm of deliverance to restate part of Psalm 57 and part of Psalm chapter 60. You know, and much like a teacher will rehearse concepts and repeat concepts over and over again so that the student learns them, the fact that we have a, a similar thing here in Psalm 108. Uh, he's rehearsing the theme of deliverance, a theme that he previously in Psalm 107 uh, speaks with, but even works in the life of the psalmist David to rehearse two earlier psalms to again drive home the point of what we need to learn for deliverance. Those two thoughts uh, in verses 1 through 5 is about praise for deliverance. And then the second thought is in verses 6 through 13, the prayer for deliverance. And again, let's remember, verses 1 through 5 is a word-for-word rehash of Psalm 57, verse 7 through 11. And verses 6 through 13 is a rehash of Psalm 65 through 12. So let's look first at praise for deliverance. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. Now, David begins by affirming the condition of his heart. His heart is steadfast or firm. Based on God's deliverance, David breaks forth in worship. He breaks forth in praise to God, and he's commanding himself, and he's commanding his instruments to respond to God's deliverance. Awake my soul, my glory as it's written in uh, some translations. But it's it, it, he's talking about his soul, the inward part of his being, uh, the, the part of his being that determines what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, that part of his being that continues on even long after his body has died and, uh, and returned to the dust from which it came. He continues, Awake, lute, and harp. Now the word lute here, we all, we're familiar with the harp, but what is this lute? The Hebrew word nebel is uh, more often used in Scripture to refer to a bottle. And so, again, you know, how does it also mean a musical instrument or a lute? And I think the thought that the translators went with to use the word lute is because a lute 
the instrument has a resonating chamber that is bulging and bottle-like in shape. And so, yes, this we don't know if it's specifically what the nebel is, if it's an actual lute, but it was some bottle-like shaped musical instrument, and the closest thing we have to that today is the lute. Um, David's intention here is he is going to not only praise and worship God in his own being. He's going to use musical musical instruments to worship and praise God for his deliverance. And then he's going to wake up the morning. And literally, he is going to be singing and praising God in the at the rising of the sun. Now, his worship, and again, how many times do we see this in the Psalms? His worship becomes witness. I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. He can't keep his praise to himself. He has got to tell everybody he knows. He's got to declare what God has done. I will sing to you among the nations. God delivered David. He delivered his people. Uh, It comes forth in praise and in worship, and now that worship becomes witness. David's praise is based on the vastness of God's loving kindness. His loving kindness is great among the heavens. Uh, in, in other words, it's it's without limit. And of course, when we think about loving kindness or mercy, we're talking about that Hebrew word chesed or covenant love, covenant faithfulness that we see so often throughout the Psalms. Also notice God's truth is mentioned here. Uh, God's trustworthiness extends to the skies. In other words, sky's the limit, okay? God's trustworthiness goes far beyond anything we can uh, ever imagine. Mercy and truth, not human creations, not something we've created, but those things that are uh, divine uh, and part of God's character. David concludes the first five verses saying, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Now, understand, if we're going to exalt God, if we're going to lift God up above all others and all else, we do it in what? Worship. And here, worship is praise. And so he is praised, and when God is praised, his glory, or the true opinion of who he is, his weightiness, will be seen above all the earth. So we have a responsibility when God delivers us. And again, this isn't just soteriological deliverance. This isn't just deliverance from hell and the lake of fire. Though, yes, that is deliverance we ought to praise God for. But how many things, think of all the little things in your life, how God has delivered you. Maybe it's from an illness, a sickness. Uh, you know, maybe it's from a difficult situation. Um, whatever the circumstance may be, but God has delivered you. Your responsibility is to praise him. I'm sure you've prayed, but have you praised? And I can't drive home enough. And I know we've hit on this over the last uh, several Psalms leading up to Psalm 108. But the idea here is that... We as God's people, when we pray to God, as quick as we are to pray, God help me, we need to be just as quick, if not quicker, to say, thank you, Lord. Praise God. This is what God has done. And share it with others. You know, maybe that would be the encouragement others need to pray and praise God for what he does. Let's move on and wrap up verses 6 through 13. And we have now a prayer for deliverance. We saw a praise for deliverance. Let's examine the prayer that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will exalt. I will portion out Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the helmet of my head, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my washbowl, over Edom I shall throw my shoe, over Philistia I will shout aloud, who will bring me into the besieged city? Who will lead me to Edom? 
Have not you yourself, O God, rejected us? And will you not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us hope against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain, though God will do valiantly, and it is he who shall tread down our adversaries. Now, in the context here, Israel is God's beloved. Today, we are the beloved. Israel is still beloved by God, but the church is also uh, his beloved. Uh, We are the object of his agape, his love. Now, regardless of Israel's sin or circumstances, she continues to be God's beloved. Why? Not because of anything she has done, but because his love is unconditional. God must keep his covenant. So too it is for us. There are many times that the church is far from being the ideal of something God would want to love. Yet he continues to love us in spite of our sin because that love is unconditional. He has initiated a covenant with us, the new covenant, and he will not go back on his word. He did not set his love on us. He didn't choose us because we were more in number than other people. Uh, Really, as he said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were more in number, but because you were the least of all people. And nonetheless, I loved you. He says the same thing to us as a church. He loves us. And as he says in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8 to Israel, he'll keep his oath and he'll do the same for us. So because of God's love, and that unconditional love, the psalmist can pray for deliverance. Save with your right hand and hear me or answer me. Uh, His prayer here, David's prayer, is that God's judgment would be lifted. Restore our fortunes. Uh, we're, we're, We're in a valley and we're looking to the mountain peak where you are, God. Lift us up out of this valley because of your love and faithfulness. And then we have an interesting interlude written here by David, but he now records God's word. God declares his sovereignty over the land. You know, maybe it was a case where Israel was fighting for to maintain control of the land. And maybe some land had uh, had escaped, some land that had been lost to the surrounding enemies. And, and God says, listen, I'm sovereign over the land, regardless of whether it's ravaged by the enemies. I speak in my holiness. That's his awesome majesty. And he says, I will rejoice. I will exalt. I'm going to repossess this property, and I'm going to order or reorder the surrounding territories. God is the one who divides or distributes the land of Shechem. That was the area around the city of Shechem, 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, God also measured out the valley of Succoth, which was on the east side of the Jordan, north of the Jabbok. He'll also measure out, or apportion, a metaphor for conquest, uh, the idea of how he's going to do that. He is going to go forth in conquest. And again, when we think about David's reign, uh, Israel was not a united nation at the beginning of, of, of David's reign. Uh, it was still very much tribal. It was still very much, oh, well, wait, what about King Saul? King Saul just uh, reigned over a portion of the tribes. He didn't reign over all the tribes. And certainly by the time David became king, uh, we're still talking about 12 uh, individualistic tribes that David unites. And in uniting the tribes, goes out to war against the surrounding nations and takes them out one by one, but not in his own strength. And that's what he we're seeing here. Because remember, we're coming out of the period of the judges. We're coming out of that period where Israel was constantly oppressed by the nations because of her sin against God. 
So God is saying here, listen, I'm going to measure it out. I'm going to take it. I'm going to repossess it. And I'm going to redivide it what it should be. So God claims Gilead. He claims Manasseh and said, they're now mine once again. Uh, now, Gilead is defined by the rivers Arnon on the south and the Yarmuk River on the north. The Jordan Valley, which is the western boundary of, of, uh, of Israel, and the desert is on the east. Manasseh uh, occupied the hill country of Ephraim, was part of Gilead, uh, and uh, Ephraim here denotes all of northern Israel. He says, Ephraim is my helmet. That's the ten northern tribes. Judah, which represents Judah and Benjamin, uh, is my lawgiver, my scepter. Again, doesn't that sound familiar? Yes, Genesis 49. And so, again, we're seeing here a confirmation of the lawgiver, the scepter, who will come from the tribe of Judah, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Moab's on the east. And now we get, a, we get downright dirty. God says, Moab is my washpot. Now, that is a demeaning epitaph, okay? Basically, God is, or God is saying, God is declaring that Moab is nothing more than his waste bin. God, it's nothing more than his place where he dumps his refuse. That's a strong statement, and then he finally goes on to say, Edom, I will cast my shoe, uh, which is a, uh, you know, if, if you want to, in, in the Middle Eastern culture, you know, if you throw a sandal or a shoe at somebody, it's an offensive sign. Well, he's casting his shoe against Edom, which, you know, basically uh, he, he's disregarding Edom. He's, they're, no, they're no better than the dust under his feet. Uh, and then finally, Felicia, uh, which uh, God will uh, capture and take as well. Uh, for himself. So whatever temporary reverses Israel has experienced due to divine judgment through the book of Judges, now under David's leadership, God is going to reclaim his land and those surrounding territories. Why? Because he's on the throne. He's going to deliver his people. Again, he's not necessarily delivering them here soteriologically, but he is delivering them from oppression of the other nations. He responds to the revelation of God's purpose by testing the promise. Okay, Lord, listen, have you not yourself, oh God, rejected us? You know, God, I know you rejected us. Is that rejection going to continue? And of course, the answer is no. In the parallel line, he says, God, are, are you the one who will go forth to battle with our armies? Now, the answer is, yes, I will. Yes, there was a time when I rejected you, but you're no longer rejected. Now, I'm going to go forth. We're going to regroup, we're going to take Edom, and God will be with us. Listen, if God is not for us, we will fail. So the psalmist prays, give us help from our adversaries. Human help is vain. It is God who has to be with us. As Israel themselves learned, if God is for them, no one could be against them. In fact, the psalmist says here, we will do valiantly. God will tread down our enemies. He's the king. He's the captain of the army, uh, and he will lead those who are righteous and obey his will. We as Christians need to learn that lesson. Listen, if you're going to pray for God's deliverance, and we should be, whatever it is, and again, it just doesn't have to be something spiritual. It could be some physical issue. But when you're praying for deliverance, listen, part of that prayer has to be, God, only you can do this. I can't do it. I've done everything that you know you have told me to do. It's all on you. You have to win the battle. You have to be victorious. And when we take our hands off of it and give it to God, watch what God will do. He will deliver valiantly. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, and come to you in the name of Jesus. Uh, we praise you, Father, for deliverance. Uh, so many things, Father, starting with salvation. You've delivered us from, from sin, from death, from the lake of fire, from eternal damnation. But, Father, so many other things in life that we, if we were to be honest and examine, we'd say, wow, God, you delivered me from X, Y, and Z. And, Lord, uh, perhaps we don't uh, praise you enough, so forgive us, Father. Lord, we want to lift up our voice in praise and thanksgiving for what you do, how you intervene in our lives. Father, more so, we continue to pray because we can, even now, Lord, some may even be going through a particular uh, t troubling time, and they're under distress, and they're in distress, and they need deliverance. And so, Father, I pray for them. I pray that you will step in, show yourself to them in a very real and, and unique way, and, and convince them, Father, remind them through your spirit that you are still on the throne and that you will deliver them. Father, we continue to pray the same for us. Deliver us, Lord, uh, from whatever trial, whatever trouble, whatever distress is on the horizon. Deliver us, and Father, as you do, equip us to praise you and declare to everyone who you are and what you have done. We give you thanks and praise. Amen.